Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 11. Aftermath of Arnhem. The regiment, or what was left of it, now returned to its bases and we had time to think again. We had been badly mauled and I was at a loss to know how to reorganise, for it was almost impossible to recreate the regiment because of the long preparation needed in the RAF training schools. It looked very much as if we had come to a standstill. It was then that I was sent for to attend a conference at the War Office. I arrived to find myself sitting at a table surrounded by British and American officers. In the chair was General Brereton, the commander-in-chief of the Allied Airborne Army. This was the latest Allied force and consisted of the 1st and 6th Airborne Divisions, British Army, and the 82nd and 17th Airborne Divisions, United States Army. A formidable force indeed, with a carrier fleet of two groups of RAF bombers and Dakotas and a wing of the United States Air Force. It represented a total of some 40,000 parachutists and glider-borne troops and 30,000 RAF personnel. It was the last word in planning, training and equipment, and I do not think that the people of either Great Britain or the United States have ever fully appreciated quite what was achieved in assembling this great army, for this immense force of aircraft, men and equipment was capable of operating over a range of 300 miles at 130 miles per hour and landing behind or on the battlefield. It was an extraordinary achievement. At this momentous meeting, I was told of the projected invasion of the Rhine by this great force. Two airborne divisions were to be dropped simultaneously on top of the defences, this time within the range of the supporting armies and artillery to swamp and overwhelm the enemy and Allied armies following up immediately to speed through into Germany. My instructions were to prepare a glider force large enough to fly, if required, 2,000 gliders. But with what? I had a casualty list of well over 500 men and no reinforcements. Clearly rapid improvisation would be needed. The only recourse was to turn to the Royal Air Force, with whom a meeting was arranged at the Air Ministry. I shall never forget it. This time I took the Director, Air, War Office, Major General Sir Leonard Crawford with me, and sitting among the RAF officers we explained our requirements. To say they were difficult is to put it mildly. They stolidly refused to budge. They did not like the idea of mixing RAF personnel with the Army. I was amazed at their attitude, hidebound and obsessed by inter-service rivalry, and waited impatiently for the frustrating meeting to end, sick at heart and despising them all. After it was over, I walked down the stairs to the entrance leading to Whitehall, where I turned to Major General Crawford and said, Sir, would you come with me to Bush House now, for I think I can find the answer to our problems there. What is that? inquired the General, obviously very annoyed with the situation. Sir, I continued, I have a friend there, the Director of Training, Air Chief Marshal Sir Peter Drummond. He will help us, I know. All right, lead the way, answered the General. I hailed a taxi and we departed for Bush House. At the inquiry desk I asked, can I have the Director of Training, Air Chief Marshal Sir Peter Drummond? The man hesitated but then gave me a telephone line. The voice answered curtly, yes. Sir, I said, it's George Chatterton speaking. Can I come up and see you for a moment? I have with me Sir Leonard Crawford, Director Air of the War Office. I won't keep you long. By all means, old boy, come up, said Sir Peter. And up we went in the lift. There sat my old friend, that kind, courageous and brilliant man, 
with a continual twinkle in his eye in spite of what was now a sad, serious expression. Good afternoon, George, he said. So here you are again. You seem to have done quite a deal since you last came here. Which army are you in now? For he remembered that I had come to his office as a colonel in the United States Army before the Normandy invasion. It would seem that you took advantage of what I arranged for you by all accounts. He spoke to me as he had done 15 years before when I was a pilot officer in number one fighter squadron RAF. What is it this time? He laughed. His eyes twinkled and he looked at me. I explained the position, what had happened at Arnhem, the demand by the Allied Airborne Army, and the result of the meeting at the Air Ministry. What? No men for your force? What utter nonsense, said the Air Chief Marshal. He rang a bell and an Air Commodore came in. Bring me a list of RAF flying personnel in the pool, the Air Marshal demanded. The Air Commodore disappeared and returned a few minutes later with a large file which Sir Peter Drummond gazed at for some time before looking up. Well... There seemed to be plenty of chaps in the pool of reserves. The overflow for the Empire Air Training Scheme. In Blackpool, Bournemouth and other camps, there are 46,000 officers and NCO pilots. Perhaps I could let you have some of these. How many do you need? About 1,500, sir, I answered. Is that all? I will arrange it, Sir Leonard. You say when. The general sat silent for a moment and then said, Well, it does seem the only answer, and the sooner we can get together and put it on a committee paper, the better. This was the usual procedure for the War Office, because everything, no matter how urgent, had to be minuted. Thus, before long, 1,500 officers and NCO pilots of the RAF were made over, so to speak, to the Army, and were posted to the strength of the Glider Pilot Regiment. Then, of course, the problem started, and I had to make a number of fateful decisions. Whatever I did was bound to be unpopular with one or other of the services, so I finally decided to integrate the RAF with the Army pilots, trying to match rank for rank. Taking number one wing, I disposed the new intake so that the wing was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Murray. I then laid down that the squadron should be commanded equally by majors and squadron leaders of the Royal Air Force, the flight captains and flight lieutenants of the Royal Air Force, and so on, down through the ranks even to the crews, for it was imperative that the Royal Air Force should be nursed in affairs military by army personnel. It was difficult to agree to all requests, and many of the RAF personnel were thoroughly browned off. They had volunteered to fly powered aircraft, but had been frustrated by the state of the war. There were not enough duties for them, and in consequence many were bitterly disappointed because they had to be content to fly gliders instead of Spitfires, Bowfighters, Mosquitoes and the Halifax and Stirling Bombers. Nevertheless, on the whole, they bore their disappointment with patience and goodwill, though there were a few occasions when I had to deal with what today might be called sit-down strikes, but these were few and far between. The most difficult task was to raise the standard of esprit de corps and discipline of the RAF glider pilots to the level of the army pilots, most of whom were battle trained, knew what was in store, and knew that their training had been a vital factor in the battles of Sicily, Normandy and Arnhem. It was extraordinary how desperately the RAF glider pilots tried to follow the glider pilot regiment example. I had great trouble, for the officers and NCOs felt that they should have some distinguishing mark to show the world what they were doing. I attempted to obtain special recognition from the Air Ministry for these men and asked that they might have a special badge, rather like the Pathfinder Force, since after all they were completely different from most of the men serving in the RAF. The Air Ministry, however, would not hear of it. Nevertheless, the pilots of the RAF contravened Air Ministry orders and piped the rings which were the officer's chevron and the sergeant pilots whitened their stripes. They even wore red berets with their RAF blue. This caused 
are dreadful to do, and I was constantly being rung up and told that the men were not allowed to do this. It was desecrating their uniforms. While all this was going on, the plans for the Rhine operation were developing, and I began trying to devise a new technique for landing the gliders into battle. Air Vice Marshal Hollinghurst, at this time, had been relieved by Air Vice Marshal Scarlett Stretfield, and by good fortune we had known each other in the old days in the RAF. Yet again, that past paid its dividend, for we at once saw eye to eye, in planning, in operations and in training. It was because of this that the difficulties that had arisen over the RAF glider pilots were dealt with, with understanding and sympathy. But I had to make a new plan for the coming offensive, and get him to agree to it. This is how it evolved. The Rhine crossing. The huge armada of aircraft was now at the ready. It was immense. 1,795 troop carriers were available for the parachutist element and 1,305 for the glider element. Two divisions, the British 6th and the American 17th, were to assault the Rhine crossings. This time, it was decided to give the airborne force the fullest protection from the outset. In the plan, the 6th Airborne Division would always be within range of the 21st Army Group artillery. In fact, the system to be used was entirely different from anything tried before. Zero Hour would see the van of the 21st Army Group over the Rhine, lying close up to the main landing zones of the Airborne Force, and the Parachute Force and Gliderborne Troops would fly in over the top of this leading army. In this way, it was hoped to achieve complete tactical surprise. It was now known that the enemy had their anti-airborne troops ready, and they were ready for mass landings in one area. They were to learn a rude lesson. It was accepted, as I've already said, that the airborne force must land on top of the objective, but in tactical formation. All agreed that the tragedy of Arnhem was that landings had been made too far from the main target. In fact, the Arnhem Bridge was eight miles from the dropping and landing zones. The soldiers, therefore, were more or less asking for the gliders to be put down where they wanted them, back gardens included. Another point of great importance was that General Brereton, commanding the 1st Allied Airborne Army, insisted that there should be only one lift, and that the maximum number of aircraft must be available for this operation. He made no bones about this. He also demanded the complete crushing of anti-aircraft defences, which was to be carried out by bombardment and bombing. It was known that the Germans were weak on the ground in the area chosen for the assault, and it was also clear that they had few reinforcements. The Allied Airborne Army was commanded in the field by Major General Ridgway, one of the veterans of France and Holland, with General Gale as deputy commander. The main object of the operation was to capture the high ground forming the western edge of the Diestfortenwald. Its capture was vital to the main forces of the army group crossing the Rhine, otherwise enemy troops ensconced there would inflict heavy casualties. Farther inland, the river Eisel was crossed by three bridges in the area to the front of the airborne attack and again, it was of vital importance that these should be captured intact to allow the main army to break through into Germany with great speed. The 6th Airborne Division's task was to capture the northern flank of the front and this was to be done by the 3rd and 5th Parachute Brigades. The 6th Air Landing Brigade's task was the capturing of the bridges and to contain the village of Hamelkern. The artillery and other divisional troops would be landed in the centre of the entire drop. 440 horses and Hamelkars were allotted to the operation the glider pilots of number one wing being the air crews. Yet again, Lieutenant Colonel Ian Murray, DSO, was to be in command of the glider pilot regiment on the ground. On March the 4th, 1945, this great formation of aircraft rose into the air and headed for Brussels and thence to the target, the Rhine and Germany. At 9.45am, the great air fleet approached the area at a height of approximately 2,500 feet. 
It was here that a strange situation faced the pilots of both the RAF and the glider pilot regiment. In the major plan, there had been a demand for the intensive shelling and bombing of Vaisal, and by some freak of fate, the smoke and dust which arose from this bombardment was blown right over the landing zones. This made dead accuracy most difficult, particularly near the ground, but in spite of these extremely difficult conditions, many gliders reached their objectives, though few gliders landed unscathed and many passengers were hit by flak and small arms fire as the gliders descended on the target. Some gliders exploded and some that carried petrol supplies went up in flames. The RAF glider pilots more than proved themselves and fought on the ground with courage and distinction. Here are the accounts of some of the glider pilots who took part in the operation. Staff Sergeant Clifford Tuppen's story. After detailed briefing, I was confidently expecting to lead a flight of three gliders to take a farmhouse and secure divisional headquarters. I knew every tree and field and the concentration of German artillery, etc. After a fitful sleep, no revalli was needed, I met the airborne troops I was taking and their officer, who was unfortunately superior in rank, and the battle for command took place at zero minus one hour. After the long tow, we approached the dropping zones to find smoke from the barrage had covered all landmarks. We flew a few more miles into Germany, and after scraping over high-tension cables, which cut the bottom of the cockpit out like a cheese wire, we made a landing which filled us full of good earth. Now, rank took over. I had managed to unload the jeep, etc., by pulling off the glider front with the aid of a small tank. Our nose wheel was no doubt still in the high-tension wires, plus my small kit. I suggested the route we should take to the Div HQ, but no. It was the other way and no arguments. We boarded the jeep, and it was obvious to my second Dickie and I that the front line was near, by reason of the noise, flames and casualties. The jeep stopped, no glider pilot driving, and I had the most horrible experience of sitting in the middle of this inferno without cover until I was shot at, which brought me to my senses and enabled me to do the hundred yards in battle order in about six seconds, unconfirmed. After many eventful encounters, my second Dickie and I managed to get back to HQ, where we were admonished for being late and told to get out on patrol duties, which lasted until relieved by the army boys next morning. I was evacuated at night with some wounded by duck across the Rhine and we were dive-bombed. By now, I was sure my time was running out. Luck couldn't hold much longer. Then we were put in the back of an ambulance en route to a convent in Holland the convoy being shot up for about 20 minutes by night fighters, at the end of which the ambulance resembled a colander. Being shut in was the frightening part. The noise at about 2am was fantastic, but the luck held. After about six weeks in hospital in Belgium, I reported to the regiment and was greeted with the words, You're for Japan. I felt it was nice to be home. Captain Butcher Giles, DFC, gives another graphic description, this time on the Rhine crossing. The trip to the Rhine was almost entirely uneventful. For the first two hours or so, we cruised around in the calm early morning air so as to give time for other aircraft from other stations to rendezvous. There were 440 British horse gliders in this operation and some 865 of the much smaller American Hadrian gliders. I remember a thrill of excitement as we swept over Brighton in the van of what must have been a most impressive spectacle and looked down at the crowds who had assembled to stare at us. The weather was perfect for flying and we did the whole of the journey in the low tow position, the best petrol saver for the tug, so that we pilots could see the black form of the bomber like a gigantic crow in the perspex window just above the level of our heads. There was no rough air and as we were in front we fouled no one else's slipstream and indeed saw very few other aircraft at all, either gliders, bombers or fighters. At Dunkirk, still in enemy hands, we were fired on but were well out of range or even the heaviest ACAC guns. 
It was only after we'd flown quite low over the roofs of Brussels and had left the field of Waterloo behind us that we began to join up with other tug and glider formations, quite a number of them in front of us by now, and to see, 20 miles ahead, over perfectly flat country, a little of what lay in store for us. A dense haze of smoke hung over the Rhine, above which could be seen the bursts of Akak shells as the first aircraft flew over the river. I saw one aircraft go down in flames, but when our turn came to cross, we could see little of the river, and indeed the smoke haze, from the very heavy bombing and shelling which had taken place earlier, was so great as to cause confusion. I glimpsed a few parachutes open on the ground, and a minute or so afterwards came the signal to release. We were at 3,200 feet. At the same moment, I saw the river Eisel, and the nearby Autobahn through the smoke haze down below, and knew we must have come a little too far. A steep turn to the right was considerably accelerated by a vicious burst of machine gun fire which came up through the floor of the glider just between where Sergeant Garland and I were sitting. I put on half flap, but this refused to work, obviously having been damaged by flak. In fact, the glider had been fairly peppered, but luckily no one had been hit. Visibility was almost nil, and we could not see Hamilton at all, so the only thing to do was to make a long snaking turn down to where I thought the landing ground must be underneath the smoke haze. We could not see the ground properly until we reached a height of 500 feet, so the landing we made about 60 yards to the east of the woods and about 600 yards due south of our proper LZ was disappointing, but perhaps not too bad under the circumstances. We made a soft landing on a ploughed field and everyone was able to get out unhurt. We did not take long about it either because we were under mortar and small arms fire from the moment we touched down. We were evidently on the northern side of the LZ of the gliders, belonging to the American 17th Airborne Division. There was a large building about 80 yards to our right, evidently a school, and another set of buildings about 100 yards in front, both unfortunately occupied with sniping coming from the wood behind us. No other gliders were near. Luckily, the flaps on the glider belatedly started to work and the cover was very welcome. There were only seven of us, but most of us had automatic weapons with which we heatedly peppered every door and window in the offending building. We were rewarded after a few minutes with the gratifying sight of some German soldiers running away. Now seemed the time to unload the glider and get away to the RV near Hammingkeln in the jeep and trailer. Unfortunately no one seemed to be able to find the key to undo the tail unit and after a few minutes of rather frustrating slashing with an axe at wires which refused to part, I decided to try the alternative of blowing the tail off. We had been provided with some special explosive cord for this purpose but to wrap it around the tail unit from the outside of the glider meant exposing oneself rather obviously to any Hun sniper who might be around. However, this was obviously the pilot's job, so Garland and I proceeded, the others taking up firing positions to cover us. The job was nearly completed, when there was a burst of fire from the flank, and I felt a blow like a kick from a mule high up on my right thigh, and a sensation of a red-hot poker passing through my leg. I tried to rush for cover, but must have passed out because when I came to, Sergeant Garland had very gallantly got me in a little slit trench which he had dug in the ploughland and had fixed a field dressing over the wound. He had also doped me with morphia. Major Rogers had been hit in the arm, one of the Devon privates killed another wounded and the company Sergeant Major, who had been such a tower of strength with his Bren gun, shot to pieces. Poor fellow. I remember how a few minutes before we went into our run-in, he came into the cockpit and chatted with me. Sir, he said. I'm not a bit worried about what happens when we get down. I can cope with that. It's this landing that worries me. I assured him that it was just the other way round with me and we parted the best of friends. Help was now at hand as several gliders came into land near us. Staff Sergeant Nigel Brown, my troop Staff Sergeant, stepped out of a Mark II horser, elegantly adjusting a silk scarf after a perfect landing, 
for all the world as if he were on an exercise. Brown was a first-rate soldier who had, I believe, served on every major glider operation and had never even been slightly wounded. His comrades believed he bore a charmed life, and it is told of him that later that morning the heavy machine gun of a Tiger tank shot the Bren gun out of his hands and reduced it to twisted wreckage, still without either injuring him or even disturbing his morale. Flight Lieutenant Tom Parsons, one of the G Squadron troop commanders, brought in another Mark II hawser, and although neither of these aircraft was carrying much besides stores and ammunition, the few men who were with them proved useful reinforcements. After clearing both sets of buildings, Major Rogers, in spite of his wound, led them all into the wood to clear it, as the sniping and mortaring from that direction were getting worse. As for me, I wish I could relate some gallant story of bravery and adventure, but I was, presumably from shock and loss of blood, unconscious half the time, and only half conscious for the rest of it. The others said they would come back for me, though this understandably they never managed to do, and meanwhile I could not move, and seemed to be drifting in a kind of dream world in which I could not always see properly. A sniper paid me unwelcome attention for a while, but he did not hit me, and after a time the fighting drew away, and I remained in a sort of no-man's land between the American and British LZs. As the sun began to get low in the sky, I heard muttered voices and footsteps the other side of the glider. I cocked my pistol and challenged them in what I hoped was a strong, firm voice, only to be answered by a cheery, Hiya, bud! It was a recce patrol of American airborne troops. These boys undoubtedly saved my life. After showering me with cigars, candy and chewing gum, which I was in no position to enjoy, they returned to their HQ for a stretcher for me. Adventures in various American casualty clearing stations, where I received a blood transfusion and more morphia, were fantastic. Twice, the whole CCS had to be evacuated owing to the heavy shelling and mortar fire, and one night we were subjected to our direct attack by German infantry. Mortar bombs and bullets were coming through the tents. I can remember lying across my stretcher and emptying my pistol into the wood from which the enemy fire was coming. After that, they took my ammo away from me, but I clung to that pistol. I had grown very fond of it by now. Flying Officer John Love, DFC, RAF. In October 1944, along with a few hundred RAF pilots, I arrived back from training in Canada and was stationed at a transit camp at Harrogate. One morning we were all assembled in a lecture hall for a talk by someone from the war office who explained that the war was entering its final phase and that due to heavy losses sustained at the Battle of Arnhem, the army did not have time to train replacements in time for the next push, that is, the crossing of the Rhine. He suggested that if we wanted to see a bit of action, this might be the chance to do so. He ended up by asking for volunteers. Those of us who did so had to take some leg pulling from the wise guys. We had the last laugh when we reported to Fargo for training and found that most of the wise guys had been press-ganged into service as the numbers of volunteers had been insufficient. However, I am pleased to say that there were no hard feelings and everyone settled in and eventually took a great pride in his connection with the airborne forces. So much so, in fact, that there was great controversy as to whether we wore red berets or blue with our RAF uniforms. The powers that be decreed that it should be blue, but I do know some of us acquired red berets and stuffed them in our smocks or small packs for wearing when we got over the Rhine. Our military training consisted of a fortnight on small arms at Fargo and a week of assault course and field training at Bridgenorth. Our flying training meant conversion to hot spurs at Croughton and a few hours on horses at Saiford, Staffordshire, before being posted to our squadron. We settled in very quickly at Tarrant Rushton and struck up a fine relationship with all the pucker glider pilots. We, who had been posted to Sea Squadron, felt that we had got the plum posting and could be pardoned for being a bit big-headed for flying hamel cars and not horses. 
On the operation itself, my second pilot was an RAF man, Sergeant Pilot McEwen, my load a Tetrarch tank and eight soldiers under a Lieutenant Starkey. Everything went smoothly from takeoff in Essex and we crossed the Rhine. Just after we pulled off, we were hit by flak and I was hit in the legs and a few seconds later, gliding down through the smoke which had drifted across the landing zone, we were hit again. This time we lost bits of the glider and the hydraulics were smashed. We careered across a field with no brakes or flaps and ended up with our nose in a ditch. One or two of the chaps were hurt, but not many, and they scrambled out and began to dig in. Mac had joined them and shouted for me to join them. I tried, but my legs were jammed, and I told him that I would just stay put. Just at that moment, some Germans opened up with a machine gun and bullets spattered across the glass of the cockpit. I was out of that cockpit and found myself lying waist deep in the water in the ditch, along with the others. As all the officers were wounded, Sergeant McEwen took charge and all the troops followed him. He had had only three weeks army training, so it says a great deal for his leadership. On one occasion, he was put on to guard a collection of German prisoners in a house when along came American parachutists who attacked the house and eventually McEwen had to surrender to the Americans. Nevertheless, we of the RAF were immensely proud of the fact that we took part in the battle. Squadron leader V.H. Reynolds made his approach to the landing under intense ACAC fire. The colonel of the Oxford and Bucks Light Infantry was his chief passenger and he had requested that Reynolds should put him down near a railway station. As they descended they found there was a flak emplacement near this railway station and they landed between the flak battery and the station itself. Nevertheless he, like many others, managed to bring his glider down in a perfect position and immediately took part in the attack on the Akak battery which was captured. He fought on, like many other soldiers, with great courage and distinction. Some of the gliders landed within only 200 yards of their objectives despite the conditions. Some, of course, were smashed to pieces by ACAC fire or crashed to the ground. The gliders of the bridge force landed with pinpoint accuracy and both bridges were captured intact. The Hamel cars were carrying bulldozers and Morris trucks and petrol and it was indeed a stupendous feat to land a Hamel car glider with such a load. The glider itself weighs 16 tonnes. In one case, the bottom of a Hamel car gave way and the tank it was carrying came tumbling through to the ground with the crew following. This was the only known instance of a glider breaking up in the air. The demoralisation of the enemy was revealed by a strange incident. One of the gliders crashed on landing and both pilots were hurled through the perspex covering the cockpit. The remainder of the passengers were terribly injured. In the crash, the glider pilot's rifles were bent like croquet hoops. One staggered to his feet and walked back in a daze to the wreck of the glider. Sitting on a wheel holding his head and with his bent rifle on his knee, he heard voices and looking up saw about 20 German soldiers surrendering to him, despite the fact that he was alone, surrounded by dead, and his rifle was bent in half. Brigadier G.K. Bourne OBE described his sensation as he came down in a glider as a passenger. I wanted to see what was happening. I could see the Rhine as a silver streak and beyond it a black haze, for all the world like Manchester or Birmingham as seen from the air. For a moment I wondered if the bombing of Vesel had been out of time and had preceded the attack. If so, the whole zone would be covered in smoke. His glider landed 200 yards from his briefed spot. By one o'clock that afternoon all the objectives had been captured and by 10 o'clock that evening General Ridgway had been able to pay the division a visit. At 10am the following morning, March the 25th, the link between the airborne forces and the 2nd Army was strong and unbreakable. Thus ended the airborne phase of the operation. The lessons of the earlier battles had been truly learned. This time nothing had been left to chance. Everything was tied up completely. It resulted in an astounding victory. It was not, however, carried out without loss, for the glider pilot regiment suffered over 100 pilots killed, missing and wounded. 
but I had the great pleasure of writing out citations of a military kind for the RAF glider pilots and flying awards for the glider pilots of the regiment. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.